0: For the rest of us, I'm going to ask that you think with me, uh, to begin with, a little bit about self-confidence and how self-confidence is a great thing and how self-confidence can be not such a great thing. Self-confidence is a great thing when it comes to sports. Uh, you train, you practice, and then the big game comes, and sometimes self-confidence is, is what makes the game or breaks the game, self-confidence or lack thereof. Or you think about a child who's been riding their bicycle with training wheels and then it's time to take the training wheels off. And in so many ways, success is going to come if they're, if they're confident, if they don't pay attention to the fears and they just do what they've been trained to do and before you know it, they're riding a bike. And self-confidence had something to do with that, if not a lot to do with that. Many of you have had a class or you've had to give a speech. Maybe most of you have had to do that. And uh, maybe you weren't that person, um, but I think in every speech class or class where there are speeches I've ever been in, uh, someone, I won't admit if it's me or not, um, you know, has has not done such a good job, let's just put it that way. Um, And then the wise teacher will take the notes away from the presenter uh, and they'll get them to talk about something they know a lot about something they're confident in. And before you know it, they they give a decent speech, if not a really good speech, because they they knew what they were talking about and it comes out in their self-confidence. In so many ways, self-confidence is is a powerful thing, an important thing. But self-confidence can be a terrible thing also, right? All you have to do is think about a toddler. A toddler who sees others swimming and it looks so easy to swim and everybody's having a great time and if that toddler's never had a swimming lesson in their life because of what they don't know and the ability they lack apart from someone intervening it's it's tragic because they lack the ability to swim even though they are confident that they can and when we move this into the spiritual realm Self-confidence is terrible. Self-confidence is one of the worst things we could ever, ever even conceive of, given the fact that every human being ever born, with the exception of Jesus, is sinful. And therefore, we absolutely, utterly lack the ability in and of ourselves to have peace with God, to have a right relationship with God. And yet, if you've been paying attention, listening to religious leaders, uh, maybe listening to friends, maybe listening to family, maybe listening to yourself, we're so drawn toward time and time again, I can do it. It's me. Maybe me and God. God helps those who help themselves. We hear these kinds of slogans and somehow you've got to believe in yourself and, and, and you can do it. And if we're sinful and the Bible says that we are, and our actions show that we are, I can't think of a worse thing than religious self-confidence. And no one knew more about this. No one knows more about this than Jesus himself. And this morning we're going to hear Jesus addressing the self-confident and uh, exposing the tragedy that it is. And I think he does it out of love for us and out of love for his disciples and and out of uh, not only love for us, but out of a commitment to the truth. And so we're going to see this in Luke 18. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to join me uh, in looking at the gospel of Jesus according to Luke, and we're going to look at the 18th chapter. If you're new to the Bible, perhaps we even gave you a Bible today, you can find a table of contents or even a page number in the bulletin that you received, and you can find Luke chapter 18. It's called Luke because Luke is the one who wrote it, but really it's all about Jesus. He's the narrator, and we're going to see and hear Jesus talk about self-confidence and and what a terrible thing it is, and how we need to not have confidence in ourselves religiously and how we need to have confidence ultimately in Him. Let's go ahead and read the passage together, uh, beginning in verse 9 of Luke 18. Will be exalted. I can't think of a more important parable. I can't think of a, 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 a more important parable for, for all time, um, but for, for our self confident religious times. And so, what we're going to do is, is look at it in a little bit more detail. And we're going to draw some conclusions from the parable, I hope, together. And uh, I have a list of seven conclusions written down. And so I'd like to revisit the verses and sort of take it apart and look at it from different angles. Seven, let's call them self-guarding, or excuse me, not self-guarding. I'm thinking of self-confidence. Seven soul-guarding conclusions from this parable that comes from Jesus just to set things up a little bit, if you're new to the Bible especially, uh, the Pharisees were experts in, in the biblical law and the law code. So they, they knew their Bibles. doesn't mean they knew the meaning, but it does know that they knew the data. They're, they're Bible experts. And they're very committed to, to saying, we do these things. We obey God's word. Tax collectors would have been at this point in time, and in this region, everyone would have known that Jesus is talking to who tax collectors were. They're Jewish people who have sort of sold out. They've sold out, and now they they work for the Roman government, and they are not only gathering taxes, they're, they're taking their share, they're manipulating, they're dishonest. It's as if they've sold their soul. Um, to make a buck they 're the bad guys so who 's the good guy in the in the parable? Well, you normally would think Pharisees and and, and you 'd normally think the bad guy is the tax collector, nobody likes tax collector and pharisees you got to like them even if you don 't like them because they 're the Bible guys and Jesus, as we just saw, sort of turns it on its head, and the guy you think is going to be the hero is actually the failure, and the guy who you think is a failure isn 't the hero but is the one that we're actually supposed to notice and and learn from and be like. First sole safeguarding conclusion would be justification is what we need. Justification is what we need. Clearly that comes through in the parable, right? Justification, the guy went to his house justified. That must be what we need. Now, in the first century, they would have understood what Jesus meant, maybe not so much in the 21st century, unless you're used to reading the Bible, and most of you are, but not everybody, we need to be justified. Well, I I don't use that word uh, normally, I was having dinner with uh, friends last night, and I wasn't talking about justified or justification, you probably weren't either. So justification is what we need, but yeah, what is it? Jesus is saying it's like the most important thing in so many ways. What what is it? It, And to be justified means to be declared. It's a legal term. It means to be declared like a judge would declare someone to be an obeyer of the law. It means to be declared righteous. And we'll see in our passage, righteous comes up. In fact, let's go ahead and see it even now, where where he says, obviously the the, the goal is to be justified. That's in verse 14. This man went down to his house justified, declared righteous, um, declared just, declared a law keeper. And we we even saw earlier in the parable in verse 9, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. See, they thought they were righteous. They were self-righteous. So they thought they were righteous. They thought they were justified. But actually, the guy who thought he wasn't, Went away justified. Went away righteous. So even though you might not use it in your everyday vocabulary, it's what you need according to Jesus. And God the judge, and it's true, God is a father too, but he's also a judge. It's not either or. God is a judge. Psalm 7 says he's a righteous judge. What we need is for God to look at us and see us as good. But we're not. We need to be justified. We need to be declared good, if you will. We need to be declared righteous. So God, the judge, can accept us. So he doesn't condemn us. And so even though we don't use the word a lot, it's super important because you will stand before God. You stand before God now, even though you're sitting. (laughs) You're before God. And how does God see you? If you're on your own, God sees you as a lawbreaker. He sees you as unrighteous. And that's really bad because he's righteous. Justification is what you need. It's what I need. It's what everyone needs. We need God to see us as obedient. We need God to see us as those who love Him and love our neighbor, the essence of God's commandments. Justification is what we need. And it's clear in this passage, it's what what we need. Maybe if that doesn't help you, I'll quote the Apostle Paul who learned all about this from Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, therefore having been justified, declared righteous by faith, faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. Oh, why do we need to be justified? Because we need peace with God. We have conflict with God now, we need peace with God. So everybody needs this. But as sinners, we don't have it. I don't want to say all you need is justification because there's more. But in one sense, I want to say it's the most important thing you need because everything else goes with it. So I'm tempted to say it's all you need just because I want to make the emphatic point. But when you have justification before God, you have all of the other gifts and blessings that come surrounding it and with it. I was thinking of that Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, when I was studying this week. All you need is love, right? Anyway, I won't go any further. And my knee-jerk reaction was to say, how wrong is that song? And then I thought, actually, in title, in chorus at least, it's exactly right. Why would I say that? You know what? All you need is love. All you need to do is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and you will have peace with God. That's all you need to do. Just love God and love your neighbor. All you need is love. It's true. The problem is we violate God's commandments. We don't love God as we're called to. And we don't love our neighbor as we're called to. That's what makes us sinners. All you need is love. Well, you don't have it, so what you need is justification. <laughs> okay? What you need is justification for God to then look at you and declare you a perfect lover of God and perfect lover of neighbor, even though you're not. And we fast forward because this is looking forward to the work of Christ. He does these things on, our, on your behalf. That's why we trust in him. You need justification. Jesus knows you need justification, and that's why he gives the parable. Even the guy who thought he was righteous, he thought he was just and justified, he wasn't, and he too needed it. Number two, another important conclusion we need to draw. Self-righteousness does not justify. Self-righteousness does not justify. Who likes self-righteous people? Right? Nobody likes self-righteous people. We use that terminology in our culture. We're like, man, that person is so self-righteous. I don't want to come off as self-righteous, but let me tell you who I voted for, you know, or whatever. We do talk that way. But it's a put-off. It's derogatory. It's negative. We don't like self-righteous. And you know what? let us I'm going to monopolize on that and borrow that from our culture and say, it's good to not like self-righteous. Self-righteous is bad. Because a sinner could never be self-righteous. Because we're self-unrighteous. Right? Righteous has to do with God's court, God's law. And if you do what God says, love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you would be righteous. But no one is. As we read in Psalm 14 this morning, cross reference Romans chapter 3, there's no one who's righteous. So self-righteousness should be ugly to us. Because it's not real. Now, that's not how we t- typically use it in, in our 21st century middle America. But in a theologically astute Bible sense, self righteousness is bad because it's an impossibility for anyone. Because we're all lawbreakers, not lawkeepers. Do notice in verse 9 where it targets these folks. Jesus knows there are people like this, and it's not that he hates them. He wants to help them. He told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's self-righteousness. Notice what he does in verse 11. This is self-righteousness. Standing by himself. Prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners. Lawbreaking unjust law-breaking, adulterers law-breaking, or even like this <gasps> tax collector. Not like that guy. I fast twice a week. Oh, now, now some sort of kind of law-keeping. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So he's, he's giving a sampling of his, of his righteous actions, and he's giving a sampling of the unrighteous actions that he doesn't keep, and he's saying, look at me. But we also should see that in verse 14, it's the tax collector who goes away justified in those strong, important four words, rather than the other. So the one who exalted himself, the self-righteous person, is not justified, rather than the other. Let me ask you this question. It's important. Did the Pharisees, like this guy, at least externally do right things? For sure they did. Now, externally they would have done wrong things too, but externally that, that, that was what they're known for. Doing the right things, avoiding the wrong things. It's, it's, it's how you would perceive them. It's how you would see them. But Jesus says, rather than the other. The Pharisees see themselves as righteous, but they're not justified. They're not actually righteous. Well, in part, it's because God knows the heart. I don't even need to say in part. Which, again, is a a whole other tangent uh, to veer away from my notes for a second. When we say, well, God knows my heart. And you're happy about that? (laughs) That's the problem. We can do the external stuff. The Pharisees did the external stuff. The problem is God knew their heart. They weren't really good. They were good on the outside, but they weren't really good coming to motive and actually doing what God said. It's interesting, down in Luke... uh, 18-19, 18:19 we'll get to it in the days ahead uh, it ends with verse 19 ends with Jesus saying no one is good except God alone no one is good except God alone again you could do general good but not true good self righteous people externally righteous people aren't justified Now, I don't know about you, but here's how I deal with this. I deal with this by finding other people who are worse at externally doing the right thing than I am. And I come, I'm come. i self-righteous. I'm self-righteous compared to you. Not any of you, because I wouldn't want you to feel bad. Because, <sighs> But I can find people who are... Worse in their external actions than I am. And in so long as I judge myself based upon those other people, I'm good. And then what I do is I take it from there and then I go this way with God and this is how we justify ourselves. Literally and not literally. (laughs) But see, the problem is that's not how God works. The measure... Is not other rebels, other sinners, other unrighteous people, other lawbreakers. The standard, the measure is God in his righteousness. And now, gulp, I've got a problem. So let me encourage you to not figure out whether or not you're justified or righteous or a lover of God and a lover of human beings in the, in, the, in the most necessary sense, in the genuine heart of hearts, even motive sense, based upon your comparison to other people. That's what the Pharisee did. I thank God that I'm not like that tax collector. But the tax collector is not his problem. (laughs) His problem is God. Psalm 711. Easy for me to remember because I love 711s. Maybe it's because we don't have them here. So whenever I'm traveling, I've got to get a Slurpee. Uh, If you don't know what a Slurpee is, you're probably not a Christian. I'm kidding. (laughs) Your parents need to travel with you more often. We used to have them here, but... I love 7:11. Psalm 7:11 is a favorite verse even though it's actually least favorite. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation or anger every day. It's terrible. And see now when I'm looking at myself in relationship to a righteous judge, fitting in with our justification idea, Our righteousness, law-keeping idea, judge. Because a judge has a law, standard. He makes judgments. Well, if he's a righteous judge and I'm not righteous, I'm in big trouble. And self-righteous people aren't justified. They're not really righteous. Maybe Pharisees today would sound like this. Some would say, well, I I, I go to church. That's my justification. I've been confirmed. I give to charity. I'm a good person. I love God. I don't cheat. My good will outweigh my bad. I've been baptized. And I'm sure that list is just a, a, a starter's list. Those are good things. The problem is none of us do them in the perfect way. Out of Perfect love for God and perfect love for neighbor. So let's make sure we hear Jesus when He says in verse fourteen, rather than the other. And you say you might be thinking this is kind of a you know a low point in my church attendance. <laughs> um, I thought the gospel is the good news of Jesus. It is. It is. But you would never. Be ready to hear the good news of Jesus if you didn't know the bad news about God being a righteous judge and you being unrighteous. In Luke 19, verse 10, we'll get there soon. Jesus says of himself that he came to seek and save the lost. You need to know you're lost. He didn't come for good people. Point being, there aren't any. He came for lost people. Self-righteous people aren't justified. And they'll never see Jesus for who He really is. And so it is good news. We can have peace with God. Well, we're going to get to that. Number three. Another soul safeguarding conclusion from our parable. How you view others is very revealing. How you view others is very revealing in your view of justification. We'll just take a couple of minutes on this one. We can go rather quickly, but let's make sure we see it. Back in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with Contempt. They, they, they treated others with, with, with they, they despised them. In other words, they looked down on them. It's a pretty good litmus for your view of justification. It's a pretty good litmus for your, your view of Jesus. How do you view other, let's put it this way, how do you view other sinners? Oh, those people, they deserve to go to hell. They're bad. God is a judge and he's going to get them. If that's my demeanor, I probably don't get it. Those bad tax collectors. Hell's made for people like that. If that's kind of my attitude and my demeanor, then I I don't get it. Surely I don't get it. That isn't to say we can't know right from wrong. It isn't to say that sin can't disgust us. It's not to say that. But it is to say, if you think you're righteous, it'll show up in you being disgusted with other people. Now, I want to be disgusted with sin, don't get me wrong. But the bottom line is, I deserve to go to hell. I totally deserve to go to hell. I totally deserve God's wrath. and so when i see other people acting badly i can say that's bad behavior i can say that's sin but i have to realize that i'm as guilty as they are of offending god let's remember that and i'm not to, i'm not trying to meddle in your business too much but i really am i'm just trying to soften the blow um, it's a telltale sign that you don't understand justification to be declared righteous by God based upon not your merits but the merits of Christ it's it's a telltale sign you don't get it if you think you're better than other people that's a good lead into number 4 one must see him or herself as a sinner one must see him or herself as a sinner. And isn't this a great illustration of how a sinner sees him or herself? Verse 13, the tax collector. Standing far off. that The idea is in isolation, not for everyone to see. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Ah, you know, to cry for mercy. This is what has to happen. He's going to be justified. That's important. That's what that's what he needs. But to get from point A to point B, you have to see yourself as a lawbreaker, as a sinner who doesn't have peace with God. And here's this desperate person saying, "God, be merciful. Don't give me what I deserve. Please." He's the one. He's the one. And Jesus is so good and kind and loving for showing us that He's the one. And we don't like people like that who are desperate and weak and not self-confident. We're not drawn naturally to those kind of people. And Jesus is saying, He's the one you want to be drawn to. By God's love and His grace, He's saying, He's the one. Have you ever called out to God for mercy we're fed on a steady diet of self-belief and self-confidence even religiously and it's poison to cry out for mercy is to say I have nothing but guilt and I don't mean psychological guilt that comes with it too Thankfully, God works in our lives to progressively remove that. But I mean judicial guilt. Guilty as in I'm busted. Guilty as charged. Dare I say that you need to have done that. You need to do that. Or there isn't any justification. And justification is what we need. Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's interesting, all of this. We've got law experts seeking to be self-righteous or righteous on their own. He's listing commandments saying, I don't want to be like the commandment breaker. And then the commandment breaker says, Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's so strong that some translations say, the sinner, the sinner of all sinners. That's how he sees himself. First John says that sin is lawlessness. If it helps you, he's saying, God, be merciful to me. I've never loved you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've never truly loved my neighbor as myself. It seems so backward for some, but this is so good. <laughs> It's so good because it's a call for you and a call for me to be honest and earnest before God and agree with God. Yeah, that's who I am. Number five, God alone justifies sinners. God alone justifies sinners. We see this in verse 14. I tell you, yeah, with, with Jesus' authoritative emphasis, I tell you, let me interpret this for you. Okay, so you can't say, you know, well, that's your interpretation. That's my interpretation. You know, what does a verse mean to you? Okay, like we do in our Bible studies. I tell you, here's the interpretation. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That is super helpful. How did that happen? How, How did that happen? The guy goes from, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, he left justified. How could that possibly be? He didn't do anything. It it doesn't say, well, then he gave alms, and he did this, and this kind of tithe, and that kind of good charity work, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he heard lots of sermons, and... He just left justified. I'm not taking liberty and saying, therefore God did that. Because literally from Genesis to Revelation, the one who saves is God and God alone. God justifies. Jesus doesn't give a treatise on that part here, but I know that that's what's going on. There wasn't time or, or ability for him to do anything else. If you want to cross-reference, you can cross-reference Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Probably a passage I reference too much, but I don't think it can be referenced too much. And to the one who does not work, religious good works, but believes in him, believes in Christ, believes in the Father who gave the Son, who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So I misspoke. It's God, the Father, who justifies, but He justifies the ungodly. His faith, His faith in Christ, is counted as righteousness. The reason I'm drawing your attention to that one, and I do so often, God justifies ungodly people. See, there's no time for me to clean up my life, and do this, and do penance, and do good deeds, and all this. No, I'm in a state of ungodliness, And God declares me righteous. He declares me obedient, even though I'm not. Well, in the context, he says of the one who has faith in Jesus. God alone justifies. That's why God alone receives the glory. How are we doing so far? man i could talk about this for a long time editing on the fly in theology we call this monergism there's your theological word for the day i have two for you okay so your challenge is to use them in at lunch not at burger king well, at Burger King, not with the workers per se. If you do that, you get double bonuses. Um, you deserve a Whopper. That Whoppers at Burger King? Yeah, yeah. Big Mac at McDonald's. Whichever one. If you can somehow work it into a sentence that makes sense and they can understand you, awesome. Um, I'll buy you a Happy Meal. <laughs> Monergism. Moner. Mono. One. Jism, energy, one way working, one working. I'm a monergist theologically. You are too, if you're a Christian. Because God justifies, and God alone justifies. The opposite, theological word number two, okay? This is worth what? A double whopper? Um the opposite would be synergism. Something that's great on committees. Something that can be very helpful in business and planning and strategizing. Because synergism, we're going to work together and we can accomplish more and if we work together, this is good. And... But when it comes to your understanding of justification, your understanding of the gospel, synergism is a terrible thing. Because you think that you do your part and God does his part God helps those who help themselves. God and God alone justifies. This guy couldn't do anything. All he did was say, I can't do anything. Right? I've done wrong, but I can't do anything about it. Mercy. And he went to his house justified. It's so good. It's so awesome. You deserve a break today. At McDonald's, do they still use... I've got to keep my day job and not do jingles. (laughs) Number six, we're going to do seven of these, and seventh is really fast. So number six, justification. Another conclusion that we need to draw from this, justification is not a process. Justification is not a process. It's a lot like the last one, God God alone justifies. Justification is not a process. The word alone, uh, to begin with, it's God declares. So it's not a process. But notice in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Again, there wasn't time to get the process going. He went down to his house and he was on his way to becoming justified. He went down to his house, let's say it for emphasis, justified. Done. How about this? In light of Romans chapter 5, he went down to his house having peace with God. God wasn't against him anymore and he wasn't against God anymore. Ultimately, because of what Christ would do for him. It's awesome. It's awesome to know it's not a process. It's not a process because it's not based upon the guy. He was still a sinner. But he had a sinless Savior. And so he went down to his house justified not a process i belabor it because there this is hugely debated i don't want it to be debated but it's hugely debated that you can lose your justification you you have to earn your justification over time and doing things and jesus just didn't get that memo and he never issued that memo he went away to his house justified Unless you think this is just a lot of theology talk, think about how important that is in your life. I know that I am a sinner still. I'm trying to love my wife the best I can. Some days are good, some days aren't so good. I'm trying to lead my family. Some days are not so good, some days are better. Trying to be a decent pastor, you get the idea. trying to love my neighbor and be a good citizen, respect authority, some days are better than other days, and you can relate, right? If you cry out to God for mercy, trusting in Christ, justified. And therefore having peace with God. So good. So good. Back to the guilt thing. No judicial guilt before the court of law in God's courtroom. And you know what? That really does help with the psychological guilt. Because <laughs> by the way, if you, have, if you are guilty, you should have psychological guilt taken care of by the perfect work of Jesus Christ it's awesome. justifies the ungodly you know and that's like my life verse <laughs> it's your life verse too if you're a Christian you're ungodly still Paul still calls himself chief of sinners talking as a Christian that's how he sees himself Oh, by the way, I should make it clear. Spiritual growth is a process. (laughs) Just So uh, we're not talking about that today. But spiritual growth is a process. But justification is not a process. It's a declaration by God that you're righteous even though you're not. Just to provide some contrast, um, some of you don't want to hear this because you're, you're encouraged, but just to provide a contrast, Canon 11 of the Council of Trent says, and I quote, if anyone says the grace by which we are justified is only the goodwill of God, let him be anathema. Damned. Just as a contrast. So I just, I know that I stand under the condemnation of the Council of Trent by saying what I've said. Not all religions are the same. There are religions of self-confidence and there are religions of confidence utterly and entirely in Christ. Theology matters. It's important. Let me just encourage you to know what you believe. Let me encourage you more importantly to examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. The stakes are really high. I commend the anathema on one level. I commend it because at least those who drafted it read Galatians clear enough to know that it can't be both ways. You're either justified by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Or you're justified, in part at least, by what you do. And they can't both be right. Hats off to Council of Trent. Trent. At least they understood that. Terribly wrong. But there is a difference. And in Galatians, understanding justification, because you're understanding if Jesus did the work or didn't do the work, matters for your soul. So, I'm being politically incorrect, but I'm not a politician. And this is a Christian church. just want to be clear on that. Okay, finally, number seven. Number seven, we're going to end on a high... We talk about little children and everyone will be happy. So that's what we're going to do. This is great. Maybe I am a politician. So um, number seven, another good lesson would be young children are a great illustration. Young children are a great illustration. This is a great way to end this. Too many times we take this out of its context, I think. Let's leave it right where it is. Verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him saying, Let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Notice verse 17, lest we think it's just all about children. Truly I say to you, now he's talking to adults, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How awesome was it that Jesus did that? He just taught them about their utter lack of ability. Next thing that happens, by good luck, no, perfect providence, people try to bring children to Jesus and they rebuke the people and Jesus says, no, 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 you you don't understand. Unless you're like them, you won't enter the kingdom. In our context, I would view it as children who are incapable on their own. Infants, small children. They need us to do everything for them. It's monergism, okay? As an illustration at least. And he says, unless you're like them, utterly helpless and dependent. Unless you're like them, you won't gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Which is another way of saying, in our context and flow of things, you won't be justified. Only justified people will be citizens of that kingdom. It's classic. It's awesome. So, the rhetorical question do you see yourself standing before God, not standing? Do you see yourself as incapable, like a child is incapable? It's how you need to see yourself. It's how I need to see myself. By God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great picture of desperation and uh, lack of ability. First of all, God, please help us to see ourselves the way you see us utterly and entirely needy, not self sufficient, not confident so that we would see Jesus for who He is and have our confidence be in Him. That He atones for our sins. That He died for our sins. That He's been raised from the dead. That He is our righteousness. Grant saving faith even today. And for those who've been justified, God, allow this message and allow this text of Scripture to, to help us as ambassadors as we leave. Because we leave and we step in to a, a world who has been taught otherwise. And, and who desperately needs to hear the good news about salvation in Jesus. That you are the God who justifies the ungodly, those who have faith in your Son. And God, Please work. We have family members and we have friends and we have enemies who are trusting in themselves just like we once did. God, please open hearts and or open eyes and soften hearts and, and give us the privilege of being able to proclaim the good news of, of reconciliation, of peace with God through Christ. That's our desire. In Jesus' name, amen.